Thanks, Andy. I think I'm here to give flesh to the prayers tonight. Uh, I'll just give you the Bible reading and <laughs> it's all been said. It's wonderful. I um, heard during the week uh, someone on radio saying uh, they'd been to a, a massed choir thing and that was so good to hear the community singing. I thought, you've been missing out for hundreds of years. We've been doing it so well. <laughs> and I like singing tonight and just the evening light and the sun coming in. It's just a wonderful way of praising God, isn't it? We might do that as we um, uh, go into our study tonight. I'll just pray for us. Heavenly Father, please be with us tonight and uh, answer our questions about the passages that are before us. Please show us more of yourself and a way to um, live a life worthy of you. Amen. Now, if you've got any questions tonight, perhaps it's a good idea to think about them now as we go through, maybe jot them down even, and then um, you can uh, ask someone at the end. I don't know if you've watched an episode of this show at all. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the slides would help. Yeah. I didn't bring the USB, so I hope it's still there. We'll start again. Well, the show I was going to talk about was Utopia. Has anyone watched that show? It's on ABC. Yeah, yeah. It's a great show. Um, I'm going to show you a picture of it in a minute. But what I like about Utopia is it uh, reminds me so much of uh, myself in, in the places that I've been. I think I could say a show's good when you can put yourself in the picture. Uh, it's a show about um, uh, the people in uh, government having grandiose ideas, huge ideas, uh, utopian ideas. And uh, the show goes and takes us to a group that's called the Nation Building Authority and they have to dissect the project that they're given and they usually work out that it's rubbish. <laughs> it's never going to get off the ground. And the look on the face, the disillusioned, uh, disillusionment and disappointment of yet another grandiose idea going down the drain uh, can leave you feeling very cynical about your own working environment, especially if you work in a, a bank or a school or a big corporation. It just speaks to you and says, oh, yeah, it's actually, that's exactly what we do. Uh, just go around in circles. Utopian dreams are not new. They've been around for a long time. You know, in France, the, the dream was a utopian one of building a better future, liberty, equality and fraternity, and then you chop people's heads off to get what you want in a bloody revolution. In Russia, Marxism came in, again, a revolution, and 14 million Russians were killed to try to bring a utopian, we're all equal society. As George Orwell said, some are more equal than others. I read of a Christian utopian group. I tried to find a few of these in my research. And the, the one I, I liked was a Christian group that uh, celebrated celibacy. So if you wanted to join the group, you couldn't have sex. Needless to say, the group died out fairly quickly. Not just because no one turned up to join, but because those who were there didn't have any children. Uh, we still dream of a perfect society. Uh, listen to John Lennon singing Imagine. That's a utopian dream. Uh, it sounds great, but it doesn't come to fruition. I don't know if you're dreaming of a utopian Christmas. Sometimes you have Christmases, don't you? The day just goes so well and you think, I'd love this year that it would be like that again. They're rare, but we can still dream. You know, the one where all the family actually turns up 
rather than say they're going to turn up. Everyone brings a, a plate of something and not just a salad, so there's nothing, uh, nothing meaty to eat. Uh, the cousins aren't killing each other this year. No one nearly drowns in the pool and uh, the blokes wash up while the ladies play cricket. That's a utopian dream, isn't it? Hey, it's only a dream. It will never work like that. The reality is we're all flawed beings. No matter if we change the circumstances, we change the environment, we give everyone equal pay, we improve technology, we have medical and scientific breakthroughs, we still live in a world that has problems because we need to change the people's hearts. Unless hearts are changed, we're never going to come near to a society where we actually think of the interests of others first. Isaiah the prophet paints a picture of a utopian world for us. But it's not our vision, it's God's. And we see it in chapter 60 of his book. Now, I don't know if you can see that, it's pretty small, but I'm going to read it to you. And uh, this, is, this is his dream, so if you don't, can't see it, just listen. Uh, Isaiah says this in chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on their arm. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and dwell and swell with joy. The wealth of the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. And then a little later down, verse 17, Instead of bronze, I will bring you gold and silver in place of iron. Instead of wood, I will bring you bronze and iron in place of stones. I will make peace your governor and righteousness your ruler. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within its borders. But you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. What a wonderful dream that is. And God signs off on that dream in verse 22 and he says these words, The least of you will become a thousand and the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will do this swiftly. God promises, but the promise is a promise. And this isn't the moment. Because it has to be built, not on us, but on the one we see in chapter 61. In chapter 61 of the book of Isaiah, which I'd ask you if you could look that up now, that's the main passage we're looking at tonight, we see a picture there of one who comes to us. As you see in verse 2 of Isaiah 61, one who comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. You get a glimpse of the nature of this person's mission. Now in chapter 61 we have three voices speaking. Verses 1 to 7 we've got one voice. Verses 8 to uh, the end of 9, you see the Lord speaks there, for I, the Lord, love justice. Then there's a response in verse 10 where someone says, I delight greatly in the Lord. That might be the prophet or an Israelite speaking. But let's work out who this first voice is that was read for us. The one who says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. 
goes on to say, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. And then verse 10, proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. Who is this one who speaks about these things? Who speaks about these two points in history? The year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. Well, we find the spotlight falling on the person who's going to bring this about. And in chapter 61, we're going to read these words. Let's go back to the beginning. The writer says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Now, you'll notice there that uh, this is a capital Lord, L-O-R-D. That refers to uh, uh, God, Yahweh. This is, this is the God who led people out of the land of Egypt. This is the Sovereign Lord, the one who saved his people and who judged those who opposed him. It's the Spirit of this God, this Sovereign Lord, who rests on the speaker here in Isaiah. So who is he? He goes on and says, the Lord has anointed me. I know we know kings were anointed in the Old Testament. So who is this one who was anointed by God for his mission? Well, we get a glimpse in Isaiah and we get some hints leading up to this. If we go to chapter 9 uh, of Isaiah, which we, we, you don't have to, but it's been mentioned before by Michelle, there's some lovely names given to this one who is to come. We're told that he will be born and he's given divine names, wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. In chapter 11, we find a root comes out of the uh, root of Jesse and uh, the stump there. And we're told that he'll be given a spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and power. So we're getting a picture of who this one is. And chapters uh, 49 through to 53, we find out that this one is also called a servant who is coming to die and to be pierced for our transgressions and die for our wickedness. And this present chapter brings all those three strands together. The one who speaks here is both divine and he is king and he's also a servant. This is the promised Messiah. So it's the Messiah speaking to us through Isaiah in this passage. Leave the passage there in front of you. I'm going to jump to uh, a passage in Luke. It's Jesus' hometown. It's the Sabbath. And Jesus, as was his custom, went to the synagogue. He was given the scroll with the set reading for the day. It was from the book of Isaiah. And Jesus turns to this passage and he reads it. And he puts the scroll down and he sits down and he says to the people there, in your presence today, this is fulfilled. Now the reaction, as we see later, was pretty harsh. They, uh, they called him names and uh, I think some of them even wanted to kill him. But at the moment, let's just concentrate on the good bits. Jesus claims that he is the one who speaks. Isaiah, caught up in the spirit, proclaims the Messiah is coming. 700 years later, Jesus stands up in this backwater in Nazareth and says the Messiah has arrived. Well, let's see what he has to say. And these are the words from Isaiah, but they're also the words from uh, uh, the words in Luke. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free 
and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Notice where Jesus stops. In Isaiah it says, and to proclaim the day of vengeance of our Lord. But Jesus stops with the year of the Lord's favour. Because Jesus' initial coming is to bring grace into our world and an opportunity to get to know him and through knowing him to know God. Now Isaiah speaks of the vengeance of God. If you're in Isaiah still, have a look at the beginning of chapter 63. The heading in my Bible is God's day of vengeance. So Isaiah speaks about that day, says it's going to come. And Jesus spent a lot of time speaking about the day of vengeance. Uh, Jesus said more about that day than uh, he said about um, heaven. He tells us that it's going to be a day of wrath and fury and anguish and despair and distress and judgment. And Jesus himself has given the title of judge. So it's a terrible day to be unrepentant and out of focus with Jesus. But that's not the day that Jesus talks about here as he sits down having read from Isaiah. He wants to speak about this day. That is the day of the Lord's favour. This is the day of salvation. This is the day you can hear the good news and receive it and share it with others. When Jesus came for that year of his arrival, the sign that accompanied him was this, the swaddling clothes, the baby clothes. It was a sign that he'd come as a human into our world to live like us, to become one of us and to take sin upon his shoulder. But we're told when he comes a second time, the sign won't be swaddling clothes, the sign will be his glory. We read these words, Jesus says them, at the end of history, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, that's the title he gives himself, and then all the tribes of earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's the great day when Jesus comes back that we long to see. It's a great day when God calls people home to himself and he judges those who aren't in relationship with him. But this evening, I'm not here to talk to you about that day. I'm here to talk to you about the day of the Lord's favour where he mercifully postpones that day to bring us grace. All humanity shares common grace. The sun shines, the wind blows, the rain falls. Injustices are dealt with. We have a court system. Evil and wickedness are restrained for most of the time. Enjoy that day, but don't waste it. Because this is also the day of salvation. This is the day of God's special grace, where we hear the saving news of Jesus and we have the ability to share it. You know, every 50 years in uh, Judaism, they have what's called... Uh, the year of Jubilee. And if you're in um, a life group during the week, you would have looked at this in probably a little bit of detail. But that's what this passage in Isaiah refers to here, the year of Jubilee. On, in, in that year, on a certain day when the ram's horn was blown, at the sound, every debt would be cancelled for, for all the Jews. Every slave would be set free and all property returned to its original owner. Oh, that was a day to look forward to, wasn't it? Especially if you're a slave and you're oppressed or you owed lots of money. You're mortgaged up to the hilt and suddenly it's all gone. And Jesus says, that's exactly what I've come to do. Listen to his words. 
Those whom the Son has set free are free indeed. He's come to free us. This is the good news. Look how he spells it out. It's good news for the poor, we're told, in Isaiah. In Isaiah's day, the poor meant not just the economically poor, although it included them, but it really meant those who had a a proper look at themselves and realised that in God's sight, they were wretched sinners in need of a saviour. They couldn't barter with God. They couldn't do a deal with God to get right with him. They knew that they owed a great debt. And yet we realise, like the year of Jubilee, their debt could be cancelled. The spiritually poor can come into God's kingdom and be forgiven. You know, Jesus uses this very chapter when he speaks in Matthew's Gospel in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus speaks to us there of... uh, what he's going to do this is his great mission statement. Look at the words there before you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. See, Jesus begins his sermon to his disciples and follows exactly where Isaiah begins his. Blessed are the poor, Jesus says, because the poor are the only people who realise who they truly are in God's sight, who need forgiveness. And those who know their spiritual poverty mourn and grieve over it. They know that they can do nothing of themselves. And God promises the mourners in Isaiah's day that they will be comforted. And Jesus says the same thing. Isaiah goes on to expand what this means. He says, instead of grief, are the and mourning and heaviness, there'll be the oil of gladness and the garment of praise. That's what God's on about. He describes here what he's going to do with them. He's going to make them oaks of righteousness, strong oaks of righteousness. Jesus in his sermon said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. And a little further down in Isaiah, we see a promise made that the people be restored to the land and given back to their original uh, those who'd lost it. We read that aliens will shepherd your flocks and foreigners will work your fields and vineyards and you'll be called priests of the Lord. All those from outside are gathered into the culture and the, the community of believers and they're all called ministers of God. No one is excluded. Everyone has free access, free and uninhibited access to the mind and the character of God. Can you see how Jesus speaks through the prophet here? He speaks in our broken world. He speaks to us. Building a utopia depends on us being good and getting better. But life's not like that. A utopian Christmas, well, perhaps it's just a myth. Perhaps it's more like the picture you see in front of you. I don't know why you've come to church tonight. I don't know your reasons. I don't know if your life has been broken in one way or another that you're harbouring pain and bitterness and resentment and you think they can never be healed. Perhaps you're actually dreading Christmas Day. We prayed for it. There might be a great day. Uh, Perhaps in your heart you're thinking, it's just too difficult. Spending all that money on people you rarely see when when you haven't got that much money to spend. Cooking in a kitchen and getting things wrong. Just watch the Mr Bean episode of The Turkey and you'll know what I mean. Being alone on Christmas Day, it's a very real fear for some people. Giving in to your addictions of gluttony and alcohol abuse, 
fear of relationships turning sour? Whatever it is, Jesus claims to deal with those things because he goes on and talks about the very heart of the problem. And he begins a process of freeing us from our past, freeing us from our bitterness, freeing us from those memories that are so destructive. That's what Jesus is on about. He's on about God's work and he wants to do something else. He announces a new name and a new status. Have a look at Isaiah uh, 61 again, verse uh, 3, the second half. They will be called the oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendour. Notice who plants the oak. It's not the oak that plants itself. It's God. The Lord does it. For who? For our splendour and our glory? No, for his splendour and his glory. And it brings believers and foreigners and strangers into his presence. That's what you get with God. That's what you get with Jesus. This is a program far bigger than our imaginations can come up with. He's come to transform us and make us ready to live in that new heaven and that new earth that's been promised to us. So there's the voice of the Messiah announcing his mission. He's come to proclaim the word of God. He's come to transform and heal. And he's come to bring in the year of the Lord's favour. So in the hustle and bustle of this Christmas, what's life going to be like for you? Are you going to get caught up in it all and say you can't see the wood for the trees? A passage like this in Isaiah says, stand back, take in the bigger picture. Look at what it costs God to send Jesus into our world. By all means, enjoy God's common grace, the fair weather, friends, fine food, family. Enjoy God's special grace in sending Jesus into our world, into our broken and brittle world. If you know those who are broken and brittle, bring them along to carols. Bring them along to church on Christmas Eve or Christmas so they can come under the influence and the realm of God's kingdom and his love and transforming grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, Jesus came to our world to make all things new. We thank you that he's begun that process in us. We're so grateful that you have given us grace. Please bring others into your kingdom. Help us not to be selfish and not want to share that. Help us to be those who are inspired to take your message to the world. See others coming to your kingdom, become ministers too of your grace. Amen. Any questions? So when Jesus was um, doing the Sermon on the Mount, um, would the people have recognised that relationship with the Isaiah passage in the, like they did when he yeah, I, I unrolled think the so, scroll yeah. and did that? Yeah, oh, I think when, they, when he read the scroll they did. And I think yeah. too, yeah, those, those who had knowledge of the scriptures and a lot of them were brought up in their mother's aprons and knew the Bible well, went to, went to uh, scripture classes. Yeah, so we're the outsiders. We have to sort of dig in and see the connections. But they would, have, they would have seen the connection straight away. Yeah, thanks for that. I had yeah. never looked at the Sermon on the Mountain. We had done that correlation, so thank you. Yeah, thanks.
Do the Jewish people still have a year of jubilee? Well, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I know that Christians did it a couple of years ago. Do you remember that where Christians said that people should cancel debts, the, especially the nations who um, were really struggling paying back debts to both America and to some of the European countries? A lot of Christians pushed for there to be a year of jubilee where the debts were cancelled. I think I was talking to Tom this morning about that. Yeah, that was great. But I'm not sure if the Jews still do that. Do you? No, don't know. Something to look up. My understanding is that they, they're, not, they're not convinced that they ever did it. Hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it, it's, it's a great... It's, it's clear what God was trying to do. Yeah. But it's not clear that people were ready to take the radical step of cancelling everything and, and resetting everything to zero. Too much, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Other questions?